Hello, everyone. Welcome to the No Judgment Zone. I am Judge Adrian, your host for the next hour. While the topics are curated, the conversations are organic. I'm excited to have you join my guests and me as we discuss politics, current events, arts, and entertainment. Kick back and stay a while. You won't regret it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the No Judgment Zone. I'm Judge Adrienne Lloyd, and I am so excited to bring you our guest for this evening. Her name is Marie Cohen. She is a blogger, and she's the author of The Child Welfare Monitor. In a moment, I'm going to have her introduce herself. But before I do that, I just wanted to share that last month was uh, Adoption Month in uh, all of the, all the U.S., And uh, it was centered around bringing awareness to adoption and the number of children who are looking for adoptive homes in the country, as well as the states around the country who are looking for families and individuals who are willing to adopt children. So in keeping with that, although this is December, I wanted to bring you a series of programs centered around adoption and foster care in the United States. I came across Marie Cohen because she wrote this wonderful piece about New Jersey, which is where I uh, lived when I was actually a foster parent. And uh, I thought it was so interesting and intriguing. I reached out to her and she was kind enough to uh, make room in her very busy schedule to have this conversation with me for all of you listeners. So without further ado, I'd like to have uh, Marie introduce herself and share a little bit about, you know, her background, how she came to be a blogger and write these these wonderful pieces that are so informative and certainly so timely. So Marie, welcome to the No Judgment Zone. I'm so pleased to have you. Thank you so much for sacrificing your time like this. And if you would, please share a bit about yourself with our listeners and then how you came about to develop the Child Welfare Monitor. Oh, thank you so much. And I am so honored. I'm sure your schedule is busier than mine. And when I looked at um, some of your other um, podcast, I was really impressed and, and felt really honored. So thank oh, you for honoring thank you. me with this. Oh. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so I, I, um, yeah, I had kind of an unusual trajectory. I started out in, I went to, um, got a master's in public policy. I knew that public policy was what I was interested in. And I had several jobs as a, right out of college as a researcher or right out of graduate school as a researcher and analyst, policy analyst. I worked mostly on poverty issues. I didn't actually at that point in my life work on child welfare, but I always had this real interest in it. Um, And then I ended up, um, you know, having several jobs. And and then I ended up taking a very long maternity leave with my kiddos and then going back to work part time and then going, taking another leave to take care of my mom because I'm an only child. And she kind of, you know, at the end of her life was really tough. So um, and then somewhere in the course of all these um you know, all of these dislocations, I ended up doing a lot of volunteer work when I wasn't working. And I was always volunteering with people, mostly like in schools, tutoring and and things like that. But I decided that I could have more of an effect on people 
by um, doing something directly with people. And I felt like all I had done in my career so far was write reports. And I felt like these reports aren't doing any good. So let me become a social worker. Oh dear, I should have listened to my husband. <laughs> the problem is that I am a writer and a researcher and I forgot that part of what you have to look at when you're looking at a career decision is not just um, you know, doing good, but what are you best at and what are you happiest at? So, so actually that was a big mistake, but I wish I had done it when I was like 21 or 25 because I learned so much for doing social work from doing social work, but the problem with it is that it was so exhausting for me. And I specifically had zeroed in on child welfare. So I actually was doing foster care social work, which I'm sure you know, Adrian, because you've been a foster parent, that this involves, um, it's almost like, because not all foster parents are great like you, it involves parenting a lot of kids. And, you know, yeah, it's like you have 10 kids and you're kind of a co-parent or a parent of all of them. So it's really exhausting. So I learned a huge amount. But I realized that this was that I had been in the right field in the first place. I should have looked for something that had more of an impact within that field. So long story short, I've already gone too long. I, I went back. Um, I, I was looking for again for a job as a policy analyst and researcher, but I really wanted to do child welfare. Nobody wanted to hire me. I was already in my 50s and I think there's some age discrimination going on. Also, I hadn't been doing this kind of work. So people were like, well, what's this weird resume? All this time off and then she was a social worker. Now she wants to go back. So I was blessed because I was able to, you know, my husband said to me, you know what, just write a blog, you know, don't worry about, you know, I'm making enough money. I was very lucky. So he said, write a blog. And, you know, I thought about this because I love writing and researching, you know, so I, I had so many ideas about things that were wrong with child welfare from from being in the system. So um, so I started writing this blog and then eventually um, I started, I started uh, writing also about things that I hadn't directly seen in the system because in it, it, what I had seen a lot of was foster care and um, how badly it was kind of managed. And, and so I wrote a lot about that, but then I eventually started to get into broader things about child protective services and, and all kinds of things. And um, it's been, it's, it, you know, it, it, I, I've been amazed. It's sort of taken, I got impatient a few times. I mean, now it's been almost seven years that I've been doing this and it took a long time to get any to get any readers at all. I mean, at first there was no one. I actually eventually um, made it nicer because I'm really not um, like presentation. It's not my strength. But I started with with this the Google blogging platform, which is free, and it looked really terrible. And <laughs> that was, they were. I'm not going to give you all the details, but eventually I went to WordPress and I I paid someone to do a logo, you know, and I made it a little nicer. But there were other reasons why for a while I was blogging through this really great publication that you may know called the Chronicle of Social Change. But now it's called The Imprint and they write about child welfare. Um, yes. And for a while they had a blogger co-op that I and that got me a lot of readers. Then they dismantled the co-op, but I still had the readers. So I was able to take off from there. And that really helped. And then I eventually discovered I could disseminate it by giving my my um, links 
to the the um, the child welfare in the government. There's a group that does um, sort of like a list of child welfare in the news. And I discovered that they would publish my stuff if I gave them the links. So things like that. But eventually it's kind of, and, and suddenly this year, like at almost seven years, people like you are, are now like calling me and asking me to be on podcast. It took that long. And I mean, a few times I started looking for jobs several times. I got really discouraged. I got really depressed. And now I'm, I'm like, wow, it took this long, you know? So anyway, it's been a journey and um, I'm really happy about it, that, about where I ended up. But I'm, I mean, having somebody like you uh, call me and ask me to be on a podcast, oh. I mean, that's just amazing. Yeah, well, thank I, I'm so appreciative that you, you took the time to do so. Because like I said, I just feel like your, your, uh, your work is, is really excellent. And I would encourage everyone to, to go to the Child Welfare Monitor. And uh, I'll ask you to share the link at the end of the program. But, you know, what I came across in particular was your piece called New Jersey to Foster Parents, Thanks But No Thanks, February 2021. And... Um, I, it, it made me pause because of my own experiences with uh, the New Jersey uh, foster care uh, system and the things that you had written about in terms of how there seems to have been this slow move toward, well, in, in some cases, not so slow. Yeah. Uh, in some cases, a precipitous drop in placement as well as um, allegations being founded or allegations even being made and, and um despite the fact that there has been a reduction in terms of the number of reports that are coming into uh, DCF. So I was just wondering if you would speak a little bit about that and, um, you know, what some of the, because I think the important thing that you did was not necessarily offer answers, but you raised very important questions, Marie, and that we should all be um, asking about what's going on, whether we're foster parents or whether we're just taxpayers or whether or not we hold leadership roles and political uh, appointments. I think these are really important questions about what's going on, especially in light of the fact that we have this you know, these PSAs that came out all last month with this push toward people, you know, uh, bringing children into loving homes. Right. Yeah. So I'm really curious about, you know, some of your thoughts around that piece that you did or, or whatever else that you might want to add in, in terms of that. Okay, sure. Well, you know, the first thing I have to say is this was like my one of my favorite pieces. It was also my favorite title. <laughs> it sounds like a great title. You know, I'm right? Yeah, New Jersey to foster parents. Thanks, but no thanks. But the title is no longer true. That that is one problem. That's like my disclaimer that I have to make. So, you know, at the time, and and actually, um, I I somebody else had written an article which and I think I told you about this um and her name is Naomi Schaefer Riley and yes. she had written an article about this piece I think it was in something called Quillette which I don't know much about was the journal or um it's or an uh, online piece but she had made first made, made me aware of it and the reason so at the time the title was correct because they were if you wanted to become a foster parent in, Jer in New Jersey, this was last February that I wrote this. So it's getting close to a year, but it's foster it parents. I, I read about this in Naomi's article and then I checked to make sure it was correct. So I, I looked for the page. I looked, I pretended I was a, wanted to be a foster parent in New Jersey and I clicked on be a foster parent and you get this, you got this message saying, um, 
we're not, uh, I actually wrote, wrote this down, but we, thank you for your interest in becoming a resource parent to children and youth in state care. Um, and, and then, um, oh yeah, it said that due to the COVID pandemic and its impact on operations, we've, we've um, suspended all new inquiry submissions at this time. And I thought, well, that's kind of odd because you can't just stop asking for foster parents. And I knew that in places like in my jurisdiction where I live, the District of Columbia, I knew that one of the first things they do did was figure out how they could continue licensing because they couldn't just stop. So they they were doing a lot of stuff virtually. I assumed that when they actually had to walk through the house, they put on their personal protective equipment. But there's so much you can do. And I know they moved the training online. You know, so I was a little confused about that. But then um, but but anyway, it, what what really got me confused is that earlier foster parents had di had a different message saying the number of youth in foster care continues to be reduced each year because we are focusing first on kinship placement. So that kind of got me and I was like, hmm, is it really COVID or is it kinship placement? But anyway, this is where I have to make my disclaimer that they are accepting foster parents now. So maybe the COVID explanation was correct, but um, because they are accepting them now, but only for very specific groups and um, definitely the groups that need it, the groups that are hardest to place. So large sibling groups and um, and um, children with special needs who especially like behavior problems. So they are doing that now in my title. So if I were writing it now, that title would be- Would not be. Yeah. Yeah. Not okay. be yeah. So okay. too bad, because that, that's how you get it. <laughs> I don't know if I should change it now, but anyway, I, so I started, um, but I, I really got interested and this was this woman, Naomi Schaefer Riley and her article had really focused on the kinship thing. So I was like, oh, okay. You know, so I started looking, well, I, so I did, I started looking into, okay, if they're able to do without, um, foster parent, new foster parents, then maybe what else could be going on? So I looked at a couple of different things. So um, I, I looked at their um, increased interest in kin, with, in placing children with kin. And that was obviously, um, that was obviously happening, you know, um, and and so that was something that I, I think I want to come back to in a minute, because thanks to you sharing some recent legislation with me, I was able to do a little bit of research in the last hour. So let me come back to that. But okay. but it's clear that um, I knew, you know, that that was one thing that was going on. But I was also looking at how they had really um, I think you alluded to this in your question to me. They they were um, so in in um, Child Protective Services. They, when a call comes in about an abuse or neglect, that's called an allegation. And then the, the agency chooses to substantiate or not substantiate it. Well, and they report this to the federal government, the numbers. So it was clear their substantiation rates had gone down a lot. So that was kind of like, wow, wow. You know, so what's going on here? And the two things could be related and because there is um, the kinship and the lack of substantiation could be related because there's something going on a lot around the country called kinship diversion, where they are sort of diverting um, children to kin to relatives without um, placing them in foster care. So they never go in the system. They never are substantiated for abuse and neglect or neglect. And a lot of those kids, um, 
you know, this is the case just closes. So there's no monitoring. There's no assistance for the kin. There's no insurance assurance that the kinship placement won't just be giving the child back to the parent next week. So that a lot of people find this a problem. A lot of people are calling this hidden foster care. And that's like a big thing that's happening around the country. So, so I want to ask a question if I can sure. just briefly. So yeah, sure. based on your understanding of that, so if a child is in fact diverted, so to speak, using that right term to a family member, then once, so there's absolutely no follow-up necessarily from the division, unless there's another um, case or, or, you know, there's some other allegation of right. abuse well, or know, neglect. I have to be careful because I don't know what the New Jersey division is doing. And as you said, I raised only questions and yeah. didn't really provide answers. So I don't know. And you've given me all this new information that I'm going to talk about, but I don't know the extent to which they're doing that. So, the okay. so when, interesting. but many jurisdictions are doing it. I would guess they are because that would be a very good explanation for why these substantiations are going down so much, because then they don't have to substantiate. The, they just close the investigation. There's no substantiation. And if they are doing that, yeah, there wouldn't be, the case would just be closed. And I know this is a big issue around the country. I know it's a big issue in the District of Columbia, where a lawsuit has actually been filed. And in several places, lawsuits have been filed because these relatives are not getting any help. And also from the point of view of the parents, the parents aren't really being given their legal um, right. Due like process, they, right. Yeah, due process, so yeah. Yes, their due process. So there's a problem. And then there's a problem for the kids. Well, both the kids and the relatives are not getting assistance that they need. And sometimes also the, the relatives don't have um, the certificate they don't get a medicaid card you know it's just get they don't get any help and they might come to the school and the school's like who are you you can't um Absolutely. you i can't give you any information so i know all of these things have been happening here in dc and around the country i just don't know the extent to which new jersey is doing this but um it's very common around the country and and there are people um you know there are experts who say that they're probably um at, uh, well, I, they just say, I should have known that. They say that there are a lot of diver- like there might be as many kids in this hidden foster care system as there are in the in the real the you know the unhidden foster care system. So it okay. seems to be a big problem. Yes, yes. Okay, that was yeah. yeah. And you yeah. were you were I'm sorry, and I interrupted you because you <laughs> were making a point in, with respect to this whole you know movement of children and. Was, it, was there something else that you wanted to add that I interrupted? I'm so sorry. Uh, no, no, you didn't interrupt at all. But I was just saying, well, maybe I should move beyond my art because at the time when I wrote my article, I was basically saying, okay, something's going on. It's, right. kin, it's kinship and or substantiate. Maybe, you know, with the lack of substantiation, it could also be that they've decided to make it harder to find abuse and neglect and just to, you know, so it could be that. But for whatever reason, they're, they're, they seem to, um, you know, be removing, uh, they seem to be removing fewer kids and they, or, or placing them with kin outside the, fo- inside or outside the foster care. system. So they don't need as many foster parents. And that's kind of where I ended. I just raised a lot of questions, but you today told, I'm so glad I had this nice conversation with you before. And you told me some things that I didn't know at all, because I did warn you that I'm not a New Jersey, I'm here in the district of Columbia. I'm not right. a New Jersey expert. And I tend to yes. like, I go around, it's kind of like a cushy job, right? I get to like, <laughs> 
you know, fly into a state figuratively. You know, I read something about New Jersey. So I write this article about New Jersey and then I then I go on to the next thing. And so I appear to be an expert on New Jersey, but I'm not. So but you sent you um, told me that and then gave me a site that there was actually legislation in New Jersey this summer that really um, changed things. And and it related to kinship and I haven't had a chance to process it all and really read it, but it, it is, it's very, very interesting. And I, yeah, I kept getting, let me just look at my note. I kept getting, um, I kept sending you emails that I just, before the, okay. <laughs> because I kept reading more and realized, Oh no, no, I got it wrong. I got it wrong. I got it wrong. So um, it's, it is it is really interesting. So so the first thing you had told me that you heard that they actually um, got rid of the permanency timeline in New Jersey. So here's the thing. And um, so I was like, no, that can't be possible because that's in federal law. So the permanency, the timeline is what was um, <clears throat> put into into the federal law in 1997 because children used to be, they used to always say languishing in foster care. So they would be in foster care for many, many years. So they put in this timeline saying if a child has been in, um, in foster care for a certain amount uh, uh, for 15 out of the past 18 months, it's time to file for a um, a termination of parental rights because we don't want kids to just languish in foster care. So this was, um, you know, this is a very important thing. And, And so when I heard from you that it's possible that they eliminated that, I thought, no, they couldn't have eliminated that because they would lose all of their federal money. However, I did find that it was close. Oh, yeah, they didn't eliminate that, but you are allowed. And this is where I really want to go to the law, and I'm sure you will, too. Um, in the, but they did they did add an exception and you are allowed to have exceptions. And yes. that's so what they did is they made kinship an excess exception. So if you if the agency decides that the child is being cared for by a relative or person with a kinship relationship to the child and the permanent plan for the child can be achieved without the termination of parental rights, that's an exception. So they don't have to file for um, termination. termination. Of rights. Right. So that is is pretty close to what you heard. So it's not that they've thrown out the timeline, but they've added this pretty um, important exception. Um, So so that is, you know, that is that is definitely something new. So they they are definitely going all in. And I'll say that they're definitely going all in for kids. And this is okay. Maybe I should have maybe I've done things backwards. I wish you could splice it. But, you know, I should have talked more about how around the nation there are a few things going on. Uh, There's a whole I mean, basically everything can be summarized under the term family first, which is the federal which is the new federal legislation that I may or may not talk about. Um, But Family first as an idea kind of has two parts. One is that it's better to keep the in as as long as the child is safe, we want to do everything to keep the child with the parents. Right. That's kind of like the first part. But the second part is if they really can't be safe with their parents, it's best to find a family member. Um, and that's just best for the child. And there is research showing it's best for the child in general. So um 
so that so this is a big push around the country. So but it does seem like New Jersey is absolutely on the cutting edge. So because you made me aware of this new legislation and there there now is a whole lot of new policies. They acted really fast. I don't know if they had the policy ready because they, they were acting like, in they were acting. I'm saying this based on yeah. my experiences. They were yeah. acting in this manner before the legislation was enacted. Right. The legislation came in to undergird and support what had already been going on because going that on. certainly had been my experience. But what I want to just yes. say, and I think some of the listeners would, will be thinking this as well, is the problem arises when a child has, it, has been in care for an extended period of time. Right. And now you are severing the bond and placing them with right. not necessarily a family that is known to them because previously it was reunification which right. means reuniting them with the family they had previously, be that their, you know, their um, um, biological parents together or uh, one parent or whatever. And it just became just putting them with a family member. doesn't matter whether or not they've ever known them. Right. And when you, when you mix that with the extended amount of time in care, that's what makes this legislation. And before this legislation, the policy that was being carried out, based on my experience, in contradiction to the law that was in place in New Jersey. You know, it just becomes just a, a really very difficult situation for the children first and most importantly, but also for the resource parents who are on the outside looking in because you really, you, you don't have standing in court. I think right. I was one of the few resource parents who who sued and went to court and, you right. know, and um, uh, it, it was, you know, it was very, very difficult. And I was able to do it because of my legal background. But had I not been, you right. know, had a legal background, there's no way they would have never. And even with me standing there with my legal background, I mean, they just, they threw everything. Right, right, right. And, you know, you can see. Right. No, I'm sorry. I interrupted. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. So you can really see the one of the most interesting things. So once you referred me to the legislation, one of the most interesting things is at the beginning, they had certain statements about why they needed the legislation. And that was one of the most interesting things, because until now, most of us have thought, and I think you and I still think that if a child has become attached to a resource parent for a period of time, like, um, you know, probably even a year, I mean, depending on the age of the child, but, um, you know, for a year or 18 months or two years, I mean, that you break that at the peril, at peril to the child. And, you know, that should not be a light decision, but they're obviously trying to get away from that. And you could see that this is the whole point of the legislation or one major point. So they have some statements at the beginning, which I thought were among the most interesting. They say children are capable of forming healthy attachments with multiple caring adults throughout the course of their childhood, including with birth parents, temporary resource parents, extended family members, and other caring adults. And then they go on to say, the existence of a healthy attachment between a child and the child's resource family parent does not in and of itself preclude the child from maintaining, forming, or repairing relationships with the child's parent. Oh, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. This was the parent or caregiver of origin. You see, I didn't have enough time to, but I feel but like still, that. Like, yeah. They're kind of, de, you know, de, depreciating the value of, of like, the bond. Yes, <laughs> of the bond. So, um, yeah. And they deleted, yeah, from, they deleted a provision about, um, 
uh, they deleted the provision that allowed evidence that separating a child from the child's resource family parents would cause serious and enduring emotional and psychological harm. They deleted that from the petition reasons for a petition for parental termination of parental rights. But um, but I did want to say one thing, though. I still don't think that what they've done gives them license to um, two or three years later find a relative because they haven't eliminated, they're not allowed, they can't eliminate the original timeline. So if, if 18 months have gone by and the child isn't with a relative, they still need to, although there are these exceptions, but if they're, if the child isn't with a relative, then the exception doesn't work. So they still should, they shouldn't be able to remove a, a child after two or three years. I just don't see how that legislate, they may be using, doing it anyway, but yeah. I don't see how the legislation gives them license to do it. So so I still think there's room for challenges to that. I don't know. Um, oh, the, how, uh, yeah, okay, go, go on. Sorry. No, you go on. You go you on. Know, but, but the difficulty is, is that there are certain states that allow resource parents to appear in court, to be present in the proceedings, yes. so as to provide information yes. about what's going on with the child yes. and be able to speak intelligently about uh, any, you know, any concerns and New Jersey doesn't allow that. Really? No, so you, New Jersey, you, you're not allowed, even you, if you request? You are you are allowed to come in and give a statement and leave. You are oh. not allowed to be privy to. But there are other states that do because there's very important information that Absolutely. only a, a resource parent could possibly have in their <clears throat> There are things that the court needs to be aware of. And I think that um, and I was hoping that at some point there would be a push in New Jersey and a joining together of resource parents and other like minded individuals so that New Jersey would adopt that policy, which would allow resource parents in the courtroom during the proceedings. They should be privy to the information. And then and that's what leads to a lot of misinformation. Yes. And it leads to a lot of confusion and um, just, you know, just bad blood, really, to to, uh, put it very bluntly uh, between the division and the parents, all of many of whom over the the majority of whom I've spoken to and, and individuals that I went through the process with have, you know, unfortunately, a very um, uh, a less than uh, kind view of that process of the process, not right. of specific individuals necessarily, but the process. You know, there was one thing that I found that could be useful that I thought was in the new policy. They do allow kinship legal guardianship with a resource family parent. I thought this was good. Maybe this could be used more. The child. So this is one of their three. They said there are three kinds of kinship legal guardianship with a with a relative or fictive kin or yes. a resource family parent. Because because the, it says with a resource parent who is licensed and with whom he or she has been living consistently for at least the last six consecutive months or nine of the last 15 months with whom the child has developed a positive psychological or emotional relationship. So I thought that was good because they're recognizing that you are now fictive kin. Right, yeah. right. So maybe that would help some, I mean, it, it just the fact that that's in, I only found it in the policy. I don't know if it's in the law or not, right. um, but anyway, that's something. But yeah, it's it does seem like they are definitely trying to, yeah, they're trying. I mean, I will say 
there's a whole, so the timeline that we're talking about, there's a whole move to get rid of that, to get rid of the whole act, the Adoption and Safe Families Act, ASFA. There's a whole move to eliminate ASFA because, yeah, because they they feel, I think the people who want to eliminate ASFA are mostly about the rights of the birth parents more than like the um, kin, but probably both. I mean, the idea is birth parents should always be able to get their kids back. There shouldn't be any, you know, it takes a long time. Like if you're a drug addict, you may need to go to treatment three or four times and that might take three or four years. And, and, you know, there shouldn't be these artificial timelines. So there is a move, which I think would be unfortunate, um, you know, to repeal that whole law, you know, and it kind of goes along with all this. There's been like, um, you know, what what are they saying? Like uh, to eliminate child welfare. And it's kind of like the police, you know, abolish child welfare and all of that stuff. So definitely, you know, there's a lot going on. There and really I, is. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of it, it disregards children. It's all about, you know, and it claims, Absolutely. you know, and a lot of it um, claims to be anti-racist, but I'm like, well, if you're, if you're putting black children in more danger, is that anti-racist? So exactly. I have a little trouble with that. Some of the stuff that's anti, so-called anti-racist, I see as pro-parent and anti-child. I mean, I don't want to set a parent. I don't right. want to pro-parent, but, but I, I understand like, what you're saying. And I agree. I mean, as an African-American person who, um, you know, had this very close uh, interface with the division, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I certainly do not think that having legislation and policies that are enacted in the best interest of the child is somehow, you know, racist against Black children. I think that the way things exist presently and the number of Black children who languish for (laughs) using that word that everybody uses, but they sit in foster care and now maybe they'll go to a family member they don't know. I think some of the questions that need to be asked is, well, why didn't the family member come forward? You know, if you were contacted in the last two years, three years, four years, suddenly now, right. when the child is bonded. And I think right. that, that is that I think the onus should be on the division to show clear and convincing evidence why a placement did not with a family member did not occur before the timeline in order to right. move a child who's who's safely bonded. In a healthy and safe environment, I just don't I don't see how how that's in the best interest of the child. I I just don't see it. I don't see it. And it was interesting because in my experience and for those of you who are friends of mine, you know, I was a foster parent. Some people don't know. But, um, you know, in my experience, I um, I an eight month old little girl was placed with me. And upon placement, you know, I was asked to commit to adopting her because um, biological mom had been unsuccessful in drug treatment. And I did that because I did not want to foster and then them and then have them remove the child. So I had very clear goals when I went in. I said, I just want to adopt. I'm not I don't want to foster. I already knew my own mind myself. And and so um, that was the only reason why I took the placement. And uh, I was her sixth placement, like I shared with you, Marie. Unbelievable. Six times. And she was eight months old. Eight months old. Yeah. Eight months old. And so but what I do want to say is that there are two things, one of which is that they cannot deny the science behind bonding for children and the trauma that is caused 
every single time a child is removed. They don't, let me, Marie, let me tell you, and I'm sure there are other parents out here who are going to hear this podcast and can attest that there are so many different ways in which the children, when they're young, they can't speak, but they're able to evidence the, the trauma of the constant moving. So, for example, with my little one, do you know it took her months to make eye contact? I would have to tap my nose because she was disengaged, right? Because I'm always moved. She's always being moved. She's never staying any place for very long. I have to tap my nose to get her to look at me. She would always look away. She had large muscle movements. I had to look it up. I'm like, why is she jerking like this in her sleep? Look it up signs of trauma lots of signs of trauma so much so that her early the parent the, the family before me who had her less than a month and said we can't keep her we think she's going to have developmental delays we don't think she's going to you know uh, grow you know and uh, be able to cognitive cognitively you know compete with her same age peers mm-hmm. and I said I have no problem with that I'll take her you know all the things no problem I'll take her and when I tell you she blossomed Everybody was in shock, like, oh, my God. And even the prior family was like, she's beautiful. She looks so normal because she had so much trauma. You know, she didn't even look like she did when she first came to me. And I just don't see how anyone is going to successfully argue against the science that says and that trauma for children is real just because they can't tell you, you know, just because they can't speak it. It doesn't mean that they haven't experienced it. And it doesn't mean that it's not long lasting. And that's the thing that the courts don't seem to get. And and so in the case of my little one, the um, we had bonding evaluations. As a matter of fact, we had four in every single one. They said, leave her. It's going to traumatize her. She's already bonded. That's her mother. And then I apologize for that. My camera just did something weird. And then that um, and then, like I shared with you, even the biological mother says, no, I want her to have her. And they just ignored it. So I think there's also another layer. So there's that layer in terms of the scientific piece. But there's the layer like I was sharing with you. I'm a member of the judiciary. They're not trained. I can say that based on everything that I've seen going into court, listening. They have no idea. And this whole um move toward just doing what the agency recommends and not having done the the deeper work, the research and really bringing in everybody is it's just, you know, it does a disservice to children. That's, you know, that's my my position. And I know there are people who work in the division and other agencies who love children who want the best for them, but their hands are tied when policies like this come down. Marie, I don't know. You know, I really don't know. Yeah, it's such a it's such a movement now. And yeah, it's just it's it's I I don't know what can be done. I mean, that was going to be my question to you. (laughs) What do you think we should do? (laughs) I know we don't want to have children. Uh, I mean, they are they're going to pay the price and then eventually the pendulum will swing back because there'll be too many bad stories. Hopefully not. I mean, once I mean, I don't want to say I mean, most kin aren't going to go like kill the child, but every once in a while that does happen. And, you know, it's just it's just uh, I, I yeah, I don't I don't know the answer because it it's just so cyclical. And right now this has gotten caught up in the whole you know, as I say, it's gotten sort of tied up with the 
with the anti-racism and the anti-police thing. And um, And it's not the same. It is not the same. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, um, you know, there's so many people who are, who are really um, ideological. And I, and I, I was, I think I was starting to tell you when we were talking together that, um, so New Jersey is uh, is um, in a class action suit. So they're under a uh, what do you, you know? They're under a um, what's it called? They're under a, a class like action. A, cons- they're un- a consent decree. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for that word. <laughs> You're the right person to tell me. Yeah. So they have to um, do certain things, and I assume that. Um, increasing kinship i think i'm sure increasing kinship placements was one of the things and and so they have um i know that i looked at the last report so every so there's a court monitor that's an agent well it's both an agency and a person but it's it's the agency is called the center for the study of social policy and the person is um is um judy Meltzer, who's the head executive director and so she technically is the court monitor and she also happens to be the court monitor for dc but so um but yeah in their last yeah i was looking at their oh i mean i was just looking at their last um report where they were they were saying um yeah it's in their strategic plan. Um, yeah, as as described in the strategic plan, DCF recognizes that children fare best when they remain with their family and is therefore committed to dramatic, dramatically increasing kinship placement for children and youth in foster care during the monitoring period, which was the six months that I think ended um, last year in December or something, DCF continued to pers- pursue its ambitious target of placing 60% of children who enter care with kin within the first seven days of removal from their homes and 80% placed with kin by the first 30 days. So that's um, definitely a lot. Uh, that's their goal. I guess they haven't gotten there yet. But what I was going to say is that this, um, I went off on a tangent as usual, this Body. No, go ahead, please. The Center for the Study of Social Policy is a very ideological um, organization, and they have um, they are behind. They are one of the two organizations behind this initiative called Upend, which is about upending child welfare. And it's basically like a you know they want to really. Yeah, it's really interesting. You can look it up. It's called upend. It's a hard word to say, but it's like capital U, capital P, and then E-N-D. And and the other group is like the, not the University of Texas, but University of of Austin, I think. Anyway, they really, it's kind of an abolished child welfare kind of thing. They... um, you know, they, they just want to radically, radically, radically change it. And they basically want to stop removing children from their parents. And, you know, it's very extreme. So if these people are also moni- doing the court monitoring. That's a problem. Yeah. And they're kind of like they're so they're so dominant right now. Like all, all the. You know, they're influencing all the, st- you know, I was going to say all you know, I was going to say all the states with the biggest foster care populations. That may not be true because Texas is really big, and I'm not sure Texas is another world. But um, they are definitely very influential. That that whole group, and then there's another um, organization called Casey Family Pro- Programs, and they're related. There's the Annie E. Casey Foundation and Casey Family Programs, and they're ve- they're kind of on. They're probably funding up in, but I'm not sure of that. Um, but they're also saying the same thing. And they 
I they give money to like all the states in the country to do okay. to do various things. So they're very powerful. So it's kind of like there's money behind it. It's just it's just kind of like taking over. So it's really hard to and you know fo- you know here you are a foster parent and foster parents are like heroes. I mean, they, well, I was about to say they save children, which is a word that these people don't like to ever use. They, the first thing I learned when I was in training, I was going to be a CPS worker. And the first thing I heard is that I'm not here to save children. I was like, oh my God, what did I go to school for three years for? I was like really upset. But you know, it's, it's just a whole, it's, it's just, it's, just a whole, a whole different perspective. And, you know, yeah. And foster parents aren't, are not heroes to them. They really want to get rid of, I mean, you know, they really want to pretty much have either stay at home, kids either stay at home or they're with kin. Right. You know, so the idea of not, you know, they they hope that foster care will just wither away, you know? And I mean, I wish it would because no children were abused and neglected. I mean, that would be the best. I that mean, it would be wonderful right, if that were right. the case. Right. Right. But as long as there's abuse and neglect, we're going to need um, we're going to need heroes like you who are willing to do this work, because this I was telling you earlier, this is what I wanted to do. But my husband wasn't. <laughs> he was probably right. And that was why I actually decided to be a social worker instead, because I really just wanted to help these kids. kids. So, um, yeah. But I mean, uh, yeah. And it's not always. Yeah. Of course, if there's a great if there's a great and I, I like the OK, I was going to say if there's a great relative. I like the fact that fictive kin counts so you can have a family friend. I like that, that it's not just blood. And I, I like that foster parents now at least they recognize that by having a child for nine months and you have a relationship, you can then be qualified. So I'm thinking that could be really you know, if, if resource parents can use that, um, of course, you know, like you said, you were able to get a lawyer and all that. And how many of them are going to do that? But no, I didn't get a lawyer, but because I'm a lawyer, that's how I got into court. Right, right, right. That's how I got into court. I would have never gotten into court. Right, right, right. But that is something, at least, I'm just trying to, that's a bright spot that they're recognizing that. And I'm I'm thinking that that could maybe be used um to say why would you i am now i'm a foster parent i'm now fictive kin i've had the kid for nine months why would you go why would you now go and find a biological relative so maybe i don't know or a friend of the family when here i am and i've been here with this child has been with me you obviously you find that my care is 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 uh is beyond sufficient you haven't removed them from me (laughs) where i'm still you know yeah, I, I don't understand that. And I don't understand the whole notion of placing a child within seven days. That doesn't give you enough time to vet that family. You don't know what's going seven days. Huh? Are you kidding me? Or even 30. That's a very short width. That's a very close, especially a family who's not known to the division. There's no right. You've got right. to run background check. You should, but you're not right. doing that in seven days. You're not running background checks in seven days. You're just not. And and getting, you know, results and, and things that you really need to know about, you know, individuals. And so and right. it forced the parents go through six months. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I mean, the standard is different for family, but I just don't I don't think seven days is or or, or necessarily 30, maybe 30. If you yeah, really I mean, have a I, robust system. Right. Right. If they really put their 
resources behind it. When I was a um, social worker in the District of Columbia, which was all, it's kind of like um, New Jersey in that it's very cutting edge. So they're always on the advanced, you know, the leading edge of new trends. So we would have something called an emergency kinship placement and we had to do it in a month. And it was tough. It was tough. But a month. Yeah, you could yeah. do it. Um, you could you you could do it and it still wouldn't be they wouldn't be fully licensed. They would still have to go take the classes. And, right. do it. But you know, and I think that does make sense, because, again, from the attachment point of view, better to let the kid if they are going to go there better to get it, get them there fast before they get attached to right. the foster. Right. Yeah. So so I think that would be a good thing. I just, I just I'm going to mention this one thing that I mentioned to you, because I know some of the listeners are waiting to adopt. Yeah. And um, one of the things that I did learn and I, and I want to put it out there and I really hope that um, folks will reach out, whether they have different information or whether this is what they're experiencing. But I did go to uh, an adoption fair uh, in New Jersey and um, did learn that even if a child was legally free for adoption, that New Jersey would still vet any family member first before mm. allowing them to be adopted. So they could have a family member who may be unknown to the child or may or may not be deemed appropriate by whomever. I don't know. But uh, New Jersey was going to um, vet them and see whether or not they would be a uh, a reasonable uh, choice for a placement. And I don't even know that, I don't, I don't know what the standard is in terms of what that family member would need to have or do as opposed to this person right, who's right. fostering a child with the goal right. of adoption. But it was something that they didn't necessarily want to share, but that, you know, I asked the question directly. And most people don't even think of that because they're like, the child is free. The child is free. I'm going to be able to adopt. Not necessarily. Oh, even, I can speak only for New Jersey. I don't know well, about any other state. Right. In New so Jersey. If, right there with you, a potential adoptive parent right now. And they're going to still vet the. Yes. That, that is crazy because I could see if. Because I don't see how this legislation, I was just trying, I guess that. And that's what I was told by the head of their division in Monmouth County. Yeah. Oh, I'll be Monmouth. that specific. Wow. <laughs> that's what she said. She didn't yeah. want to say it, but I, you listen, I use my cross-examination skills, Marie. <laughs> I said, so is it this or is it that? Because right. it can't I, be well. Tell us all. Everybody's here. We want to know. What is it? Tell us. The, and that was all. That's my only thing. Be transparent with resource parents. Don't let them think that there's a possibility of adoption or that. Right. You, That's and, it's not, and you know, it's not. And you know, it's not. But how are they? Yeah. I mean, I just don't see how that policy is sustainable. Yeah. Because no one's going to want to adopt. Yeah. That's just nobody's going to want to. People will want to adopt. They just won't be able to. Yeah. So I think they'll probably say, well, I have to do it some other way. It's for a private adoption. Exactly. I'm not going to go through this again. Exactly. That would be horrible. But yeah. that's what's been going on. I just want to wow. say, based on my experience, my conversations, my attending, a relatively large meeting on adoption. Wow. Yeah. Is- but listen, we're going to wrap up. We have a few more minutes, but I would sure. like to ask you. Um, I want you to close out with any, you know, ideas or points or anything that you can think of that you think are important and, and they can be formed as questions. You know, I, I'm not looking for you to have all the answers, although I know that you're brilliant, you're a wonderful oh, writer, no, no. 
Your blog post is excellent. Again, I'm going to encourage everybody to go to the Child Welfare, Child Welfare Monitor and read. But um, yeah, anything that uh, you want to share, Marie, before we close out? Because this has been an, just an awesome conversation. I really want to, I would love to have you back again. I would love to be back. I would love, I would love to love have you back again. Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard. To, I just feel like, you know, child welfare is just this really strange thing that, um, it's a it's a strange field because um you know it seems like most people aren't interested most people are not interested right like even if i try to talk about i write about this most people will like change the subject right i, yeah. I don't know you yeah. know so they don't want to hear about abused and neglected kids so uh, there's not a big political constituency so you get these ideological movements and then nobody else is really oh. um, you know speaking out against them so i just feel like you know, talk to your legislators and tell them how you think and educate them because um, they have to know that they're members of the public who care about this, you know, because because it's just easy to have these, you know, these movements. And I was saying to you earlier, I feel like they're kind of like um, they're they're based on theory and they're not people who are on the ground dealing. Amen. Amen. Yeah. So the legislators <laughs> need to hear these stories and yeah. you know and don't be quiet. You know, just go out and you know and and just express yourself because this is really you know inform organizations. You know of uh, you know work with other foster parents and work together. And um, and and, um, you know, declare what your point of view is. And because because, yeah, this is about the children and and just make clear, you know, I just feel like we have to make clear that we're talking about the children and exactly. and, you know, that children are the most helpless. And, you know, here's the other oh, other soapbox thing that I'm always saying. So I, I don't know if this is, you know, I'm a liberal Democrat. OK, okay. but I'm finding that my fellow Democrats are not um, they're somehow not on the side of the children. They're much more like on the side of like parents' rights and all this. And I'm, I'm confused because I always thought Democrats are for the underdog and for, you know, the children are the most helpless and they need to help the most. most. Vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. So I always I, I feel strange that my my group, you know, I, I just feel like, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm anti-parent. I just feel like, you know, the most important thing, of course, I feel for parents who have mental illness or drug. Sure. Or I'm not blaming them. But the first thing is the kids like, OK, you may need 10 years to kick your drug habit, but your kid doesn't have 10 years. So right. let's I'm not saying punish you. I'm just saying. If you're a good mom, you're going to be very grateful if Adrienne is going to take care of your child and then you take care of yourself. And then when you're ready, maybe you can, you know, see your child and all that. But, you know, kids have a limited timeline, right? They, these are the yes. precious years when they enter into care and they languish in these systems. And you're right. I, I mean, you know, God bless you. I couldn't have said it better, Marie. I mean, Aww. you're absolutely right. Really and truly, you really are. And, and I'm just going to, you know, continue to have this conversation with people, hopefully educate, become more educated myself yeah. and educate others. And, you know, I mean, 
I tell you, when I went to court, I was crying. I was like, I wish I could have find someone just to write it. You know, they call it an amicus brief. It's a friend of the yes, court brief. Yeah. And yes. I tell you, I couldn't find anybody. I couldn't find anybody. And that's a that's a long story for for our next uh, <laughs> interview. I'm I'm going to share that with you. And but. that's my, and my very quick long story is I don't my very very quick long story is I haven't been able to find child advocacy see groups in most states. And that is shocking to me. I'm telling you, it's nothing. Because they are not real. Yeah, they really aren't. They really aren't. And it's there's nothing out there and no one would take my case. So that's why I had to go myself. (laughs) (laughs) I had to go myself. No one would take it. Sorry, you don't have it, But that's okay. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. but that's okay. I want to thank you. I want to say God bless you. I'm so grateful that I found you and I found your, you know, your peace. And I just thank you so much. If you would, before we end, I think we have 60 seconds. Please share how our listeners can contact you and find the Child Welfare Monitor. Oh, cool. Well, you know, it's really just childwelfaremonitor.org. So just child welfare and M-O-N. ITOR.org. And there is a contact me page. So that might be the easiest way to do it. Or you could email Marie at childwelfaremonitor.org. But um, I have to thank you. I'm so grateful you found me. And I hope this will be only the first of many conversations. Maybe in person one day. Yay. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. Bless you. Thank you so much, Marie. I'm so appreciative. Keep writing, keep writing, keep writing. I will. I will. Oh my God. I appreciate you you so much. I appreciate have a wonderful evening. Thank, Thank you, you for, for lending me and, and our listeners this hour of your very precious time. Well, I learned a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining me, Judge Adrian Loy, here in the No Judgment Zone. I hope you enjoyed our latest podcast. Please follow on all platforms where you access your favorite podcasts. This is Judge Adrian Lloyd, and I am Anne's daughter. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the No Judgment Zone with Judge Adrian Lloyd are solely of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent any entity or other individual. The No Judgment Zone with Judge Adrian Lloyd is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in this podcast. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to inform and entertain. This podcast does not constitute legal or other professional advice or services.